0: we're listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. We are located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. To find out more about us, please visit www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. Did you grab your Bibles this morning? We're back in the Gospel of Mark yet again, continuing our series The sermon text this morning is Mark chapter 11, verse 27, through Mark chapter 12, verse 12. So let's, as God's people, give our attention to God's good word. Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we acknowledge that we need your word this morning. We desperately need your word We are a people who need to be refreshed with your love. And so we pray through the preaching of your word, would you refresh us? Would you show us what's in your heart? Father, we need your word. We confess it's so easy to become sleepy. It's so easy to become dull. We pray, awaken us. Awaken us to true reality preaching of the gospel, repentance, faith. Would you show us urgency? Would you create urgency in our souls? Father, we pray through the preaching of your word, would you fill us with blessed hope? Fill us with blessed hope. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So so what is going on here? If you're a parent, I'm sure this is a question you've asked many times in your life. You you walk into the room and you see one child crying and the other other child sitting there with a a sheepish look on his face, and you say, Well, what's going on here? Or you, or you leave the child alone for what it seems only a few seconds and you, and you return later to find the after effects of a permanent marker or a pair of scissors and, and what do you say? Well, you look and you say, what is going on here? And with this question, what is going on here, as parents we're not so much concerned with the, the facts of the case, the when and the where of what's going on, we're, we're quite able to deduce what a, a pair of scissors can do to someone's hair. We're quite able to deduce what permanent markers can do to your furniture, your body, or your clothes. Now, when we ask this question, we're, we're trying to, to figure out the inner logic of our children. Why would you do that to your body? Why would you do that to your sibling? Why would you do that to our house? What is going on here? And as parents, we, we desire precious insight into our children's souls. But when we ask this question more times than not, we just get a, a blank stare from our children and we're, we're left as parents to try to figure out what exactly is going on with them. And so as we approach the Gospel of Mark again this morning, this is a, a, a fair question to ask the narrative set before us. What is going on here? We can think about it. On the one side of this story, we have the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has, has come to preach to Israel a a message of good news, of victory and peace. He says, the time is fulfilled and the the kingdom of God is at hand. And throughout the the ministry Jesus has, we we see what this message means. We find in Mark's pages, the the sick healed, the storms calmed, the the hungry fed, the the sinful forgiven and and welcomed into Jesus' arms, the the dead raised. And those who are oppressed by demons freed. But on the other side of this story, we have the religious leaders of Israel, men who have been charged to shepherd, men who have been charged to care for the people of God. And we have seen from the very beginning of this story, these men have set themselves against Jesus to them as they consider Jesus' message and ministry. He was not a messenger of peace, but just another false prophet attempting to lead the people of God astray. And as we follow this story between these two sides, what happens is that these two sides begin to lob verbal grenades at each other. So the scribes, they, they watch Jesus or they hear Jesus say, Son, your sins are forgiven. And, and Mark tells us what's going on in their minds. They're saying he's, he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they, they watch Jesus as he, as he led his men. And they consider Jesus a, a lawbreaker, a troublemaker. They said, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They even proclaimed that Jesus was in league with, with Satan. They announced, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He casts out demons. And so what have we found these men doing throughout the Gospel of Mark? We well, found these men plotting and planning the death of Jesus. Just waiting for that opportune moment when they finally can get rid of Jesus. But there's another side in this story as well. The Lord Jesus is not to be outdone. While Jesus surely preaches good news and he administers grace and mercy to the needy, we can say with certainty that's not all that Jesus does in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is not simply gentle, meek, and mild. There's, there's more to this man, there's more to this Savior. He's not simply full of sugar and spice and all that's nice. Rather, as we travel with Jesus, we learn with growing clarity what he, he thinks about these men who are charged to lead Israel. And what do we find coming out of Jesus' mouth? Well, we find very difficult words that Jesus speaks to these men. He speaks words of exclusion to them. He says, Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. And Jesus came to these men and, he, and as he watched them operate, he, he labeled them as hypocrites. He, he saw through them. He, he saw that they put on a good religious show, that they would wash their hands and their cups and their pots and their, their couches. But he saw through all of that. And he understood that they were full of defilement. They're full of evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And he understood that these men charged to preach the word did not cherish the words. Jesus says to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And we saw this all come to a head last week as Jesus entered into the temple and overturned tables and drove out those who bought and sold. He he turned to these religious leaders and he called them what? Criminals and robbers. And so we're charting out this story, and there's rising tension between these two sides. And as readers of Mark's gospel, we rightly ask, well, what is going on here in this story? And again, with this question, we're not so much concerned with the facts of the case, the when and the where. We can access this data. Mark has put it right in front of us. We can go back and reread these tense dialogues. But what we're really concerned about when we ask this question, what is going on here, what's actually, what's the inner logic to all of this? What's going inside the the hearts of all of these people? And so we can ask, why would the shepherds and teachers of Israel oppose their long-promised Messiah? Why would these men trained intensively in the scriptures oppose the long-promised salvation of God? Why would these men so so religious be so blind to to the way and work of God? Why would these men say to Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? or Who gave you this authority? After witnessing so many of the mighty deeds of Jesus, publicly displayed, what have we seen? seen? We've seen the casting out of demons, the raising of the dead, the feeding of multitudes. Why would they say this? By what authority do you do these things? And we can turn our attention to God and his son and ask questions of them as well. We can ask, well, why would the way of God be so difficult and and so opposed? This is God Almighty, the God of angel armies, the God with a, a mighty right arm. Why would his way be so difficult? We can ask, well, why does the son of man travel on a path marked with suffering and rejection and trouble And it's appropriate to ask when we consider all of this and where the story is leading us, what is going on here? As we think hard about this question, it doesn't take too much work to understand just how far out of our league we are. How can we really understand what's going on in the hearts of these religious leaders? Even more, how can we plumb the, the heart and mind of our God? And thankfully, we don't have to flounder about in our own speculations because Jesus comes to us this morning and provides precious insight to us in the form of a parable. He tells a simple story about a landowner and some tenant farmers. And while the story is simple, this little parable explains the whole logic of the gospel story. Jesus tells us in this little story what is actually going on in his ministry. And this is what we're going to give our attention to this morning, this This little parable. So what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to walk through our text first, just listening to the story. We want to hear the story well, to get the details. And after listening to the story, we're going to draw out insights about the following characters. We're going to learn what kind of insight we can pull out of this story about the Father and the Son and the religious leaders. So we can give ourselves to the story Jesus tells and so the story starts rather unremarkably. Verse 1, Jesus says, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. What we see in verse 1 is common practice in the first century. Wealthy landowners would own large tracts of land and they would rent them out to tenant farmers. And what we find in our text is that this landowner literally provides everything for a successful farming operation. What does he do? Well, he, he plants a vineyard, and then he puts a fence up around this vineyard so that wild animals cannot go in and wreck the vineyard. And then he digs a wine press and he, he builds a tower. He's looking for fruit. And the only thing that we find missing is someone to work the land, and so we find in verse one, the owner brings in tenants to work the land. And as we consider this situation, the arrangement between these two parties is, is fairly straightforward. Both the tenants and the landowner get a share in the crop. The tenants get a share in the crop because they do the hard work, the backbreaking work of, of farming the land. And the landowner gets a share of the crop. Why? Because he's, he's rich and he's, he's invested his money in this land to get a crop out of it. And so we see that both the interests of the owner and the tenant should be aligned. They both should want the same thing, a a quality, a bountiful harvest. Because a good harvest is going to enrich both parties. However, it's here with the profit of the land in question that that all sorts of problems arise. According to the contract, the landowner gets a share from the land. Jesus tells us about this in verse 2. He says, When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit. However, at this point, the the tenant farmers have no desire to share the proceeds from the land with the owner. Verse 3, Jesus says, And they took the servant and beat him and sent him away empty handed. And so there's misdealing, there's controversy here in verses 2 and 3. And it was not uncommon in Jesus' day, and it's not uncommon in ours. When we think about our our news feeds, what makes up so much of our news feeds? Well, it's, it's labor disputes. But this is where the story goes off the beaten trail. When well, we have a labor dispute, well, what do we do? Well, we, we send in a team of lawyers, and the team of lawyers clean up the mess and, and get the money that we think we deserve. And, and in Jesus' day, this would not have been handled with, with lawyers, but with a militia. He would, he would have sent in armed forces with swords and spears to administer justice and to extract the fruit from the land. But this is where the, the story goes off the beaten trail. What does the landowner do? Well, he doesn't send in a militia armed with, armed with swords and spears. Rather, he sends another servant. Instead of acting with rage, this man shows patience. And how is his patience rewarded? Well, we see it in verse 4, Jesus says. Again, he sent them another servant and they struck him on the head and, and treated him shamefully. And the landowner is steadfast in his patience. And so he sends servant after servant to these rebellious farmers. And what do these farmers do? Well, they interpret the owner's patience as weakness. The more patience the owner shows these farmers, the more they interpret it as weakness. And they, they rebel more and more. It seems that the, the, far, that the landowner's patience is, is, is encouraging their rebellion. Verse 5. And he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. And it's at this point, that the story is at the breaking point. And as readers of Mark's gospel, we should be thinking, well, how can this landowner continue to show patience to these rebels? How many servants is he going to send to these people who only kill and beat and shame them? How can he keep all of this going on? And at this point, the landowner should be seething with anger and vengeance. The only thing this landowner should be contemplating is is blood, the blood of the tenants. That's his right. That would be justice. But that's not what we find in our text. The landowner is not deterred by the violence. He's not deterred by the bloodshed. His heart is set steadfastly on patience. And so we read verse 6. And he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. We have to get this in our minds. Off goes the son. He goes unarmed, he goes without an army, he goes on a mission of peacemaking. He doesn't go to these tenant farmers to avenge the lives of the servants already beaten and killed. He only goes to get a share of what rightly belongs to his father. He goes to get a share of the fruit. He goes to remind them of the contract they made with their father. And it's here that this tragedy strikes. The tenant farmers are not moved to repentance by the patience of the landowner. These these mutinous farmers are not interested in peace. They have no desire for it. Rather, they see the coming of the sun as an opportunity to finally gain what they so desired. What do these tenant farmers want so bad? They want independence. They want to get rid of the landowner. They want the inheritance for themselves. Verse 7. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And this is what we find these tenant farmers doing. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. But there's one more part of this story. These, these mutinous tenant farmers misjudged the owner of the land. They interpreted his patience as weakness, when in reality his patience was just pure mercy and kindness towards them. And with the death of his son before him, the time of patience is over. And the parable ends with these chilling words. Jesus looks these religious leaders in the face and he says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Jesus gives an answer to his question. He says, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And so there's the parable that Jesus and we ask, and we ask rightly, what is going on here? And as we take a a step back from this parable and we we meditate on it, it is clear that Jesus' story borders on the absurd. Think about it. What, What owner would persevere in the face of such violence, sending servant after servant after servant to be shamed, beaten, mocked, and killed? Just think about it. What father would sacrifice his son for some grapes? That doesn't make any sense. Some produce or my son's life. Well, what group of tenant farmers, and we need to think here low class, unarmed peasants, impoverished people, would be so foolish to actually think they could rise up and defeat a powerful landowner? It's ridiculous. What the Lord Jesus wants us to do with this story is wrestle with the absurdities we find in it. For what Jesus has done in this story is reveal exactly what's going on in his ministry. Jesus makes the the, the logic of the gospel clear through this strange and absurd parable. And so we ask, what is going on here? And we can direct our attention to the Father. What do we learn from this parable about the Father? Well, Jesus wants us to understand that the landowner represents the Father, the God of Israel. And so as we think about Jesus' story, we can ask, well, what did the landowner do? Well, we answer, well, he did everything that was necessary for the success of the harvest. He, he planted a vineyard. He built a fence. He dug a wine press, He built a tower. Everything that was needed for this vineyard was, was done by the landowner. And in the same way, we can ask, what has the God of Israel done for his people Well, we can answer he's done everything that's needed for their success. You can go back and read the Old Testament and you find that the Lord had had done everything for their success. He gave promises to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He he rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. He he delivered them from the wilderness. He, He gave them a land flowing with milk and honey. He gave them rest from all of their enemies. He built a tower. He built a temple in their And he dwelled among them. He did everything that was necessary for the success of his people. What's so interesting, when you read the Old Testament, the Lord's salvation of Israel, what the Lord has done for Israel, is often described in agricultural terms. What Jesus is doing in Mark chapter 12 is, is not original. Psalm 80 recounts the Exodus story like this. You brought a vine out of Egypt You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. Isaiah the prophet also reminisces on the Exodus story, and he describes it like this in chapter 5 of his book. He says, My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and, and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. But as we think about all of these stories we have before us, the Jesus' story in this parable, the, the story of the Old Testament, there's tragedy in all of these stories. Think about Jesus' story of the tenants. What does the landowner really desire? Well he desires fruit from his vineyard. He has invested, he's built all of these things so that he might get fruit, and what happens he doesn't get the fruit he desires. When you go back and read the Old Testament, what what does the Lord desire? Well, he desires fruit from his people. He has promised, he has saved, he has built, he has sheltered, he has protected. So there might be fruit. What does he find? Well, he doesn't find the fruit of righteousness or faithfulness or justice. He finds wickedness and and bloodshed and idolatry among his people. So we ask, well, what is Jesus doing in this parable? Well, Jesus is laboring in this parable so that we might come to see something about God. He, he's telling this parable in a certain way that we might come to know something about this God of Israel. And it's this Jesus is laboring that we might see God's heart. Think about this. The landowner had the right to exact judgment upon his tenants, they broke the contract. They broke the contract, they spilled blood. Think about the story of the Old Testament. What rights did the Lord have? Well, they broke covenant, Israel did. And so we ask, well, what did the the landowner do in the face of this wickedness? Well, he showed love. And as we read the Old Testament, what did the Lord do in the face of Israel's continual wickedness? Well, he shows love. And we can ask, well, what kind of love is in the Father's heart? Jesus makes it clear it is a, a patient love. The landowner sent servant after servant after servant. And when you read the Old Testament, the Lord sent prophet after prophet after prophet to the people of God. Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah. And he sent all of these men to to call the people of Israel back to himself. What you find in the Old Testament is a story of the Lord's patient love. Persevering love in the face of Israel's wickedness. Patiently calling his people back to himself. And again, we can ask, well, what kind of love is in the Father's heart? And Jesus shows us it is a costly love. The landowner would not exact vengeance until every opportunity for repentance had been explored, even at the cost of his own son's life. As we think about the story that Mark's telling us, does this not make, us, does this not make sense of what's going on? Jesus' mission to Israel, his his faithfulness in suffering, his, his doggedness in preaching the gospel, all display the love of God towards his people. The God of Israel will not give way to wrath until every opportunity has been spent upon these people, even the giving up of his beloved Son. What Jesus is doing this morning in this little parable is so precious. He's calling to us and he's revealing the Father to us. He says to us in this parable, look carefully at my coming. Look carefully at my incarnation. Listen carefully to my preaching. Look at my ministry. Consider my suffering, my rejection. Do not neglect my cross and my death because they all reveal something. They're all serving a purpose. What are they revealing? They're revealing what's in the heart of my Father. It is full of love, top to bottom, eternally so. And this is the fact we should be reminded of each time we opened up the Gospel of Mark. This is the fact we should be reminded of each time we consider the ministry of Jesus. Every story, every healing, every parable, every dispute reveals what is in the heart of the Father. It's full of love. And this is what's driving the logic of Jesus' story and mission. It's because the Father's heart is full of love. Because he loves these people. And as we sit here this morning, we have the precious news to consider that the Father's heart has not changed. The Father's heart is yet full of love. He is yet patient and kind. He yet perseveres with us. Just think of your life, of how the Lord has persevered with you, sending messenger after messenger after messenger into your life. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 highlights this fact. Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And Jesus, through this little parable, opens wide the character of God to us. He says, look carefully, you'll see the Father's heart. He is a patient and kind God, not wishing any should should perish, but that all should repent. Again we can ask, well, what's going on here? And we can turn our attention to the religious leaders. What insight from this parable do we gain about these these men? And Jesus wants us to understand that these tenant farmers represent the, the religious leaders of Israel. So as we consider Jesus' parable, there's there's nothing good we can say about the tenant farmers this morning. They're a group of rebels. They broke contract with the landowner. They they abused the landowner's servants, shaming them, beating them, killing them. And at the height of the rebellion, they do what? They they kill the landowner's beloved son. And it doesn't take too much work to understand what Jesus is talking about this morning. Sadly, we, we see these events take place in the Gospel of Mark. We can ask, well, what did the religious leaders of Israel do with John, John the Baptist? Well, John showed up to Israel, and he was calling them to do what? To repent, to turn back to God. What did these men think of the ministry of John? Well, they thought that it wasn't a ministry of God, that it was a ministry of man, and they disregarded his preaching. We can ask, well, what are these men planning to do with Jesus? Again and again, they're they're conspiring with themselves. How to destroy Jesus, how to kill him. The question is, well, what does this all mean? And it's essential to see this. The the religious leaders have not just rejected John and Jesus, but what they have ultimately done is reject the God of Israel. They're like the wicked tenants who murmured among themselves, saying, this is the heir, come let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Jesus in this little parable exposes what's what's in the hearts of these men for all to see these men might know the scriptures forwards and backwards, while they might go to the temple and offer up sacrifices, while they might put on a good religious show, we ultimately see, as Jesus reveals, that their hearts are so far from God, that ultimately they have no desire to serve God, but ultimately what's in their heart is this, they they want to be rid of God. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They want it all for themselves, to be rid of God and his laws and his purposes and his covenants. And it's here, it's here that we're faced with the saddest part of this parable. No amount of pleading, no amount of preaching will turn these men back. Their hearts are hard and calloused against God. And Jesus is laboring here to show us something, and it's this. The end of those who refuse to repent. And Jesus preaches quite clearly that the Father's patience will not extend until forever. There is a time of reckoning. There is an end date, a due date, we could say. The, Jesus preaches to these, in, to these religious leaders, and he says, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. You have to picture this scene. Here's the Lord Jesus Christ, and here are these religious leaders arrayed before him, and he won't let these men evade this point Those who refuse to bend low in repentance and faith will meet the judgment of God. Jesus' words are are clear. The landowner himself, the God of Israel himself, will come and destroy the tenants, these religious leaders, and give the vineyard away to others. And this is the very matter that the Lord Jesus Christ presses upon us this morning. The scriptures are quite clear that there stands a day fixed when, judge, when the judgment of the Lord will be revealed, when it will be made evident, when all will give account for the works they have done in the flesh. And, and Jesus calls to us from this little parable. He is saying to us this morning, do not misunderstand my father's patience. Do not be confused about my father's kindness. Do not misinterpret these things. He's saying to us, do not become drowsy under the preaching of the gospel. Do not be negligent in in meeting the demands of the gospel, practicing faith and repentance. He's preaching, bend low in repentance and grab hold of me in faith, for judgment is indeed coming and will fall upon those who do not repent and believe. Jesus preaches in this little parable, do not misunderstand my father's patience. Do not be confused about his kindness. These are all meant to lead you to repentance. We can turn our attention to the Lord Jesus and we can ask, well, what insight do we gain about Jesus from this little story? And as we look at the ending of this story, we're left stumbling. Just think about it. The landowner's servants are bruised, battered. Some of them are killed. The landowner is taken advantage of again and again and again and again. The beloved son has gone on a mission of peace. But he's been killed and thrown out of the vineyard like an animal. The tenants are destroyed. The vineyard is given to others. What do we find at the end of this parable? Will we find sadness, suffering, death, blood, lots of blood? What are we to do with this ending? But as keen readers of Mark's gospel, we should be prepared for a, a different ending. The story cannot end in defeat and death. Yes, we expect the beloved son to suffer, even to die. We have been listening to Mark's gospel carefully. Jesus has told us three times this. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Jesus has said the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will, they will kill him. Jesus has said very explicitly they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. But we're attentive readers of the, the scriptures. And we expect something else to happen after this. After each passion prediction, after each prediction of suffering, trial, and death, there's this little word about resurrection. Jesus doesn't underline it. He doesn't put it in boldface, but it's there. He says, and after three days he will rise. And at the conclusion of this parable, Jesus ends it all with a reference to resurrection. Resurrection. Jesus quotes Psalm 118 in verses 10 and 11. He says, Have you not read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. What is Jesus doing here? Well, he's, he's revealing, he's making clear to us that a great reversal is going to take place very soon. The stone that was rejected by the builders, the builders look at the stone, they say, It's not fit for our building. It's not up to snuff. Jesus says that stone the builders rejected will become the cornerstone. It will become the chief stone, the most important stone, the very stone that will hold the whole structure together. And Jesus is saying this is the very logic that's at work in my ministry. He's calling us to look in faith. He's saying to us, you need to understand this. Though I'm rejected today, I will soon be crowned in glory. Though I, I suffer terribly in this present hour, I will soon be seated at the right hand of the Father. Though I mocked and insulted now, I will be throned on eternal praises forever and ever. Though I will be murdered outside the city gates and tossed around like an animal, I will be raised to life eternal. And again, Jesus is giving us the insight we need. The cross is not the end of the story. The Son of Man will be glorified. And this is the news that we need to hear. This is the news that we need to get. The parable of the tenants is full of sadness, suffering, and blood. But this parable does not end with sadness, suffering, and blood. How does this parable end? Well, it ends with joy. Unimaginable joy. Jesus quotes Psalm 18, and he puts this in front of us, and he says, This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And brothers and sisters, this is is the logic of the gospel Jesus wants us to get and grasp onto and hold. Think about it. Our our lives are are marked with suffering for all sorts of reasons. Think about it. The, The gospel is maligned around the world. Discipleship is fraught with persecution. What does Jesus do? At the end of this parable, he says, yes, there's going to be suffering. Look at my own life. But he points us beyond it, and he said, there is a coming day. There's a day of glory. You need to get it. Look ahead and set your eyes upon it. Tears will not win out at the end of this story. Sadness will not be the end of this story. Suffering will not have the last word. Defeat is not the end. Worship will. Joy is the end of this story, Jesus says. Have you not read the scripture?" The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's how the story will end. Jesus says, that's the insight you need to understand my gospel. And that's what's going on.